0: Hello and welcome to the New Books in Theatre podcast. I'm your host Matt Freeman. Today we are speaking with Martin Denton, the editor of the Plays and Playwrights series and also the editor of NewYorktheater.com. I hope you enjoy it. Hello and welcome to the New Books in Theatre podcast. Uh, with me today is Martin Denton. Uh, Martin is the editor of newyorktheater.com and uh, uh heads up the New York Theater Experience, Inc., I guess, and um, is the editor and publisher of a series of books that have been around since, I guess, 2001.
1: About 2000, actually. Uh,
0: 2000, uh, called uh, Plays and Playwrights, uh, where he chronicles... Um, some of the more, uh, the new plays that are coming out in the quote unquote indie theater scene, um, uh, what uh, is known by many people as the off, off Broadway scene. Um, it's a uh, new venture. Martin is a very influential guy in terms of um, bringing uh, web coverage to the New York theater scene and uh, covering a lot of the theater that um, kind of flies under the radar. And I'm really glad that you have a chance to talk with me today.
1: Well, thanks. How are you? Thanks. I'm glad that you asked me to do this. I'm great. How are you? I'm doing great. Good. Nice so, to chat um, with you. Sorry yeah. not to see you in person.
0: <laughs> well, uh, I'll see you in person another time, I'm sure. Um, uh, so, to start with, why don't we talk a little bit about um, your background, um, uh, what got you started covering theater, Um, I know there's sort of a story that goes uh, relatively uh,
1: far back. Yeah, well, I guess the place it starts is, is in 1996, When I went, was still working for Marriott International, and I went to take an internet class, and at that point in time, the internet was still a very new animal, and, uh, and so basically I was taking it just from the perspective of being a a guy who worked in computer systems at Marriott who was learning about this new technology. And what happened was that I enjoyed the class a lot, and I thought, well gee, I think I'll make a website myself so that I can practice how to do this and I decided to make the website about New York Theater because that's something that I love, although at that time it wasn't anything that I did professionally. It was just a great interest of mine. And so I built Martin's Guide to New York Theater. Uh, It debuted in November of 96. And in those days... As I said, it was the early days of the Internet. It's hard to remember that that was the case, but it was, and there really were very few theater websites in those days. And so it became popular pretty quickly, um, at least in the sort of niched area of people who care about theater and are interested in trying to figure out how to make the most of going to see theater in New York. And so within a p- very quick time, uh, we got a lot of readers, and it became a full-time venture. I changed the name of it to nytheater.com in 1997. Um, in 1999, I actually left Marriott and formed the New York Theater Experience Incorporated, which is a non-profit company um, that runs the website and does other things to try to promote in a tangible way the, um, you know, the work of theater artists in New York City. Um, And pretty quickly, I don't know. you I'm going to segue into the story of the first book. Do you want me to do that, or do you want me to talk? Oh, about
0: please it? do. Yes, absolutely. I'd love to hear. Yeah. Let's get started there.
1: All right. Well, I mean, that's that's kind of the next stop. I mean, Nyt Theatre dot com had been around for a while and was was successful. And then in '99, in 1999, we embarked on our second major program. What had became the second major program of our nonprofit company, and that was the publication of, of books of anthologies of plays from the world of indie theater or off of Broadway. And the way that that really started was, was totally accidental. Um, in the spring, in the spring of 99, I saw a play called Are We There Yet at the now defunct Synchronicity Space on Bursa Street in Zoho. And it was a really nice play, really enjoyed it. And on the way out, I remarked to our managing director, Rochelle, uh, who had seen, seen the play with me, I said, you know, that was really a terrific play and somebody ought to publish it because otherwise it will be lost. The nature of the beast in, in the world of off-off-broadway is that after 16 performances and the showcase code production, the plays pretty much disappear. And unless somebody publishes it, it's pretty much gone forever. And so I just sort of had this passing remark. Um, and then months later, at the end of 99, I said to Rochelle, I don't know why, but I did, I said, remember when I said we should publish are we there yet? We ought to publish a book. We should publish a book of new plays from off-off-broadway. And Again, sort of for unknown reasons, Rochelle said, yes, you know, none of us had ever neither of us had ever published a book or had really an idea how to go about it. Um, so we did. We contacted eight playwrights whose work we had seen and liked over the last year, and asked them if they like to join us in this crazy venture and they all did, and Plays and playwrights for the new millennium was born from that. It came out in January of two thousand, and the thing that was important about this was that. At this period in 2000, right right at the turn of the current century, publishing yeah. publication of new American plays was pretty much bare beast. If you weren't Edward Albee or David Mamet or somebody like that, Neil Simon, you know one of the really really prominent commercial playwrights. Basically, there was nowhere to publish you, with the only exception being the Humana Festival, you know, the new play festival in Kentucky every year. And they they have a great record of publishing their their participants' plays. But right. that was pretty much, if you weren't a superstar playwright or one of the people lucky enough to get in the Humana, you were pretty much out of luck as an American playwright, um, right. especially compared with like you look in Britain where there's a great tradition of publishing plays. you actually, when you go to a theater, the play is almost always available to you in a paperback book that you could buy right there. And so we were sort of addressing that emptiness in the market. And it was as much my own personal interest, you know, just like, gee, I'd like to be able to read these plays. And I think others would too. And that was sort of the important discovery. When we did plays and playwrights for the millennium, we discovered that there was an audience hungry for this work. And so this thing that started out as just really very much a whim became a major program of our company and an annual event so that every year since we have published a plays and playwrights anthology that uh you know presents some of the best new work that we've seen in the world of indie theater
0: and uh what's the uh the how many is the this book coming up uh, comes out when?
1: Well, we have a book that's going to come out in mid-May. It's probably around May 20th is when it will hit bookstores and okay. and uh, virtual bookstores online. And right. Book-
0: You've just moved into e-publishing, e- trying that out as yes, well. Yes,
1: exactly. We published our first e-book about a year ago as a Kindle book and then later brought it out as a... Nook book for Barnes Mm & Noble Online, and we've now published uh, the second one, Plays and Playwrights 2003 came out. Uh, We're basically bringing back the out-of-print books first, and Plays and Playwrights 2004 will probably be out by about May 1st or so. Okay. And then the new book, Plays and Playwrights 2011, which is our 12th annual volume, is going to come out simultaneously next month as both an ebook and a regular print book and that's the first time we've ever done that. And we're really really curious to see how that works out because yeah. you know, you never know. What's nice about the ebook publication is that because the costs are lower, you know, we don't have to buy paper and books and things, you know, there's no right. there's no money out the door. No Thing. Exactly. We're able to, for the first time, offer the, the playwrights who are included a royalty. We used to just provide them with, uh, with copies of the book, but now we can provide them with cash royalties uh, based on sales, which I think they really like. And sure. we're happy to do it because, um, you know, we want – that's always been the goal of the series. I mean, one goal has been just to get the work out into the world, and we've been successful uh-huh. doing that. But it's also definitely to try to support these playwrights in, in some kind of tangible way, and money yep. is as tangible as it comes. so
0: That's true. I mean, I definitely uh, find it interesting that, um, you know, some people just – I mean, there's a debate about what makes you a professional as opposed to an amateur, quote-unquote amateur in the classic sense. Yeah. I mean – an enthusiast, even if you're highly skilled, uh, are you a professional unless you get paid, so so to speak? Um, and obviously there's a lot of people working uh, who, you know, there's just not, capitalism doesn't <laughs> work for the arts in the way that I guess most people would like it to. And, uh, and so sometimes you find that people are working at a very high, quote-unquote, professional level and not really seeing an income stream. Do you have any opinion about, what do you do you make a distinction between amateur and professional? Do you think about that?
1: Well, I don't know, I don't think I don't think I think about it in those terms. I mean I think I guess I think about it in a couple of ways. I mean, one thing is that certainly when we figure out what we want to put into the books, there's certainly a level of quality that we're looking for. I wouldn't I never thought to use the words amateur versus professional, but um, we only publish book plays that have had productions, and so I think right away that sort of gets rid of a lot of what you might call amateur playwrights, because putting up a play, as you well know, is not a little an easy thing to do. (laughs) So, so that we always, I really feel like that's an important criterion because it means that. You know, and, and almost none of the people that we publish self-produce. So it means that somebody else in the world liked this play enough and cared about it enough to actually mount it and spend the money and spend the time. And so that makes me feel like that's a level of professionalism that we want to endorse and, 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 uh, reward you know but then the other thing is is this whole idea like you said of, of money equaling you know earning a salary or earning some money equaling that you're a professional and I think that that's really important I think that it means a lot to a playwright, I mean, we've had in several occasions, and actually, only just the other day, one of the playwrights who is in plays and playwrights for the New millennium, um, which just became an ebook about a year ago, and we actually mm-hmm. paid them their first royalty. And he said, "This is the first royalty I've ever received as a writer um, wow. of my plays." He's actually he's actually a journalist, but he. Um, you know so he's been paid to do that but as for his art you know right and that was really exciting and i think he was really excited even though it wasn't a huge check he was really excited that i you know, hand hey, being paid to do what i love
0: uh yeah absolutely um so when you make a choice about what goes into the book um uh what's the criteria that you, you i mean is it just intuitive you i mean you see Um, lots and lots and lots of theater. Um, Do you see everything you choose? Is some of it on recommendation? well or do you, do you uh or, or does the criteria sort of change or
1: you can, you can cut this the only play that i have ever published i deb didn't see first was yours um, <laughs> and that's because we love you so much and we trusted you and we love the play and and it was right. my, it was 11 nine eleven because the play got cancelled I mean, isn't that why we didn't see it because it was going to happen. Uh,
0: no no it it, it went it it was,
1: on. It got, it was it hard was, to get to or something wasn't it, it was, was just really cold it was not. <laughs> Is that the reason why didn't okay. I didn't say I think there was an important
0: reason why we couldn't go well, um yeah, I mean well, full- disclosure, I won't cut this. I think people should know obviously you you did publish me, um full disclosure to uh people who read or uh who read the book and and who are listening to this um and my play that you published, it was my first publication of a play um it was the death of King Arthur, and it was. It it the production went up right after September 11 and was rehearsing during. Yeah, and uh, we actually the, the times actually sort of scolded us for not realizing how cold it was. Yes, so that might have made it hard to yes. come out. And see, but I appreciated that. And um, but for the most
1: part, you do. You yeah, do. I mean, the rule is we have to see it. I mean, we, we we did make the one exception in your case, but we've we've been tracking its progress, and I, and and so I feel like we 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 didn't make a mistake. I don't think we missed up on that one.
0: Well, well, thanks.
1: But but. The rule is that we have to see the play in production and the other sort of official criteria are that it's supposed to be the first publication for the playwright because that's really the key ingredient of what we're trying to accomplish. If, if a playwright has already got a publisher, then that's great. We're happy that they do. That's not our job. Our job is to bring playwrights their first point of publication, to, you know, to really try to bring them to the next level. Basically I always say we take people from being a completely unknown playwright to being a completely unknown published playwright. And- <laughs> <laughs> and that's you know that's the first step you know because then yeah. you suddenly you aren't completely unknown suddenly you know I know that it matters I know that when the Times decides what to review being published matters to them just to take an example you know sure. it really it really is meaningful so that's that's the most important thing the other things that we that we use as criteria are more. Um, subjective, and they have to do with that I always like to pick plays that that feel like they're doing either they 're representing the time in a very clear and and an engaging way uh so that they are representative of the period or that they are. It could be and or, I should say, and or, they are doing something new, that they're changing the way we experience theater in some interesting way or, you know, contributing some kind of innovation. And we try very hard, and I think we've gotten more conscious of this as time has gone on, and we've been aware that this is kind of an ongoing series, that I try hard to make sure that the, the plays that we pick look as much like the season as they can you know so that they okay, you know so that there's a nice variety you know we want it to be a nice look that people will like so we try to make sure that every year there's some comedies and some dramas and maybe a musical maybe a solo show and often you know sort of unusual things we published a puppet play we have published a completely silent physical theater piece that has no dialogue at all that was tricky um, <laughs> what was that play called? that was Bull Spears in 2005 hmm. we published a lot of verse plays um such as yours and Chris mm-hmm. Bromley's. Um and, and a lot of things that I think are just sort of text, like Julia Barclay's Word for Your Mama. That was the first one of that nature where there's not even any characters or sets or anything that you would call a traditional you know, things you would expect to see in a traditional script are all right. missing. It's just a text that the director can play with, you know, in a sort of, you know, Mac Wellman-y, you know right. sort of style. You're...
0: Yeah, that opens itself up to being <clears throat> interpreted by the director
1: exactly and, that, and the thing that that I find interesting is that very often in a book where that'll be the play the play that gets done the most because directors are really looking for that kind of material that they can play with sure more than just a fun traditional two act you know play, although we publish those too, I mean again, we try to publish the spectrum of of everything we also try to be conscious without quota system. we try to be conscious of diversity of various kinds and we try to make sure that women are represented in every book and and people of color are represented and you know diverse points of view in whatever way you know so there sure. you know, hopefully a lot of different themes. I always say that i don 't expect anyone to like all the plays in the book except me. Um, <laughs> But that ultimately is what it comes down to in the end, is that I, we don't publish a play that I don't like. We've certainly, right. over the period of time, come across plays that I thought were technically swell, mm-hmm. but I just didn't care for the subject matter. I didn't like, you know, it just did rub me the wrong way. It's a purely personal, mm-hmm. idiosyncratic thing, That's but it's one, my book. Okay. You know?
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's one question I do sort of have for you is, do you feel like you come to... At this point, I mean, you, you've you uh, been involved in, in the indie, quote-unquote, theater scene, and I, I do want to discuss that term a little bit and also uh, seen so much work. Do you feel like there's a, an aesthetic you prefer, something that when you sit down and you're watching it, um, you, you know you're going to like this? Or do you try to just sort of say, okay, what am I looking at and how does it succeed on its own terms? I mean, you must have... You know your own taste i mean how do you what do you think uh what do you think you bring to the table as a as an as a viewer
1: well, I think that my aesthetic is a combination of a constant hunger for new something different and new i mean that's the mm-hmm. main thing so originality, whether it's some kind of theatrical innovation or just an original point of view. You know what I mean? I mean, sure. one, of the, one of the plays in our current book really comes to mind. It's called Hassan and Sylvia. It's by a guy named Manny Agrihas. And he, the play is, in terms of its form, there's nothing at all unconventional or unusual about it. It's a very traditional sort of, you know, multi-character play where, you know, you know with lots of scenes. I mean, it's, you know, it's the kind of play that you would see You know, structurally, there's nothing unusual about it. But what I loved about it, and the reason that I chose it, is because it looked at its subject and the world in a way that I'd never seen really in any art, because it's basically a play that, in a very loving but unsentimental way, exposes how everybody is a whore on some level. Fascinating Mm. concept. Um, and, And true in its way. I mean, a way of looking at the world that I thought was smart and interesting and that you don't see. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, and and not you know, and I'm using the word "for" because
0: that's the wants... word the playwright uses. Yeah, exactly,
1: yeah. but I mean, but it's not. There's no judgment, and that's what I love about it is that he mm. was able to take this subject and say, "Here's something true about humanity," and I'm not judging it. I'm just presenting it. It's another way to look at a situation. You know. Yeah. And those are the kind of plays I think that appeal to me the most. Where it's just a, you know, but I leave the theater and it's like. Wow, I had never, you know, I'm, you know, I've been seeing lots of stuff over all these years, and here's something that I just haven't come across yet. So those are like the top things. The other thing, I mean, I love. Things that are sincere. I don't like cynicism. I don't like meanness. I don't like gratuitousness. That cuts out a fair amount of uh, of uh, off off Broadway. Uh, sadly, I think it <laughs> kind of does. Um, yeah. But you know, all that said, one of the things that we that this has developed into is it's definitely an important way for us to try to bring forward talented people that we think need to be brought forward. And so you know, we rely a lot on our colleagues and friends and the people that review for us and just people, people like you, people that we've gotten to know, other playwrights, to help mm-hmm. point us to say, hey, check out so-and-so because this person looks really talented and they're just at the very beginning of their career. And I make a point to doing that um, right. and seeing people and saying, hey, here's this person who, you know, maybe they haven't written the perfect play yet, but they need to get some attention. So we're going to take their play and sure. put it in the book.
0: One question I have for you, uh, uh, you know, um, is obviously you, the the site and the, the books in a way are a way of sort of reviewing the work in a professional way to sort of to, to give the work feedback, to be a critic. And um, but you also the mission of the organization is to be an advocate and there's an advocacy level as well. So. How, a lot of journalists, uh, quote unquote, or even, you know, editors for magazines or what have you, are very, very careful not to blend advocacy and journalism. It's sort of a or or that's a controversial thing to do. If you're going to blend advocacy and journalism, uh, you better have a good reason for it. Or, you know, you, or, uh, journalism is supposed to be as, as objective as possible. And critics try not to get personally enmeshed in the uh, in the work that they're Responding to, and that's really not your posture, uh, as far as I've been able to tell. Um, how do you sort of reconcile those things? Do you ever um, are you are you ever sort of questioned on whether or not you are, uh, you know, uh, objective, or do you feel like it's not really your role to be objective?
1: Lots, well, you know, lots of good ideas there. You're so smart. Um, <laughs> uh, let's try to sort it out. I mean, one thing is, I think that from my perspective, the journalism and nytheater dot com is the, the, the pure objective reportage, which is the listings, which is the, the main part of the site that people read, actually, in real life. I mean, we, Oh, really? Yes, we feel like. I mean, I, it's 100%. always important to keep, so keep track of that because the reviews take more time per show, by far, and feel personal, and we love them. But, in fact, what most people come to the site to do, like half of them, just come to look at the listings and see what they're going to see it tonight, you know, or tomorrow when they, or when they come to New York. And mm-hmm. and that's the, a really important goal of the site and it's really important that the goals of journalism you know, like accuracy and correctness be met because people rely on that information. And I think of the review as being just a wonderful feature on the site that, you know, as it, as, as, as the site has grown we've invited lots of people and again, you're, you you included every once in a while you will contribute a piece um, mm-hmm. and lots of people who know Uh, know about the theater, who are theater professionals uh who can speak knowledgeably about the work they see. And to my mind, you know, my reviews and their reviews are all just somebody's opinion about what they saw designed to hopefully stimulate some conversation, provide enough information so that somebody reading it can figure out if they think they might want to spend the time and money on the show. And no more. I mean I don't look at us as tastemakers or leaders and in, in, you know, trying to figure out, you know, what's gonna be a hit or what's gonna be successful. It's just a conversation. When I write a review if I know the playwright or other artists, which is a lot of the time, yeah, it's always a conversation between me and them. I, mean, I don't know if you've ever noticed that, but I mean, I'm writing to you if I write review one of your shows. right? And right. the only person that I really need to read it is you. And it's not so much to give you constructive commentary. I'm really just trying to say back what I heard, because that's what I think is important. I mean, there's a lot of different things going on. Right, one of the contributions yeah. I make... Reviewing somebody like any of the authors that I've published, you or Kirk Bromley or anybody that we've published that who, who does a lot of work, um, that I've pretty much made a point to follow everything they've done because I think they're important artists. It's really kind of a contribution to, his, to history more than to journalism, you know what I mean? I'm trying to create a body of here's somebody who's been here watching this artist grow. Right, um, who got there earlier than anybody else, probably, right. and so has a very different perspective. So I, I think that that informs a lot of my reviewing. I think.
0: So it's sort of to, to because you've seen the the work, you're not coming at uh, any of the, the the work that you're seeing as a blank slate. Uh, now that could be true of let's say a you know timeout. I'm sure uh, David Cody over at Timeout who's the editor of uh, the theater at Time Out in New York City, um, you know, he's uh, very familiar with a lot of the people that are working off often. Is a, probably personal friends with some of them. But I, I do notice that he he kind of goes out of his way not to review the shows of the people that he knows, you know, because that's sort of the professional standard and, and, and good on
1: him. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think there's. know yeah, I think that's good. It's just not what I do.
0: That's just not know? what you do, yeah. right? It's you just view yourself doing doing something else. Yeah.
1: Because um, you, what you asked about, and I, I want to get back to the point is, I mean, I mean, I don't know. I mean, advocacy always feels to me like it might suggest something political, and I don't think of us as particularly ultimately political, except in that abstract way that everything is political. Sure. Um But I think what we're trying to do. I mean, the, the best quote that I think describes what we do is a quote that Kirk Bromley gave to Robert Simonson in a book that he wrote years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, where he was writing about me, and Kirk described me as an engine of enthusiasm for the art. And I absolutely love that, because it really felt like he got exactly what we're trying to do. I mean, that's we're all about encouraging people to see theater. And if that means that, um, you know, we're not always... You know, distance from our subject. Well, I mean, by definition, that's what it means, isn't it? We're not distance from our subject. We love theater, and we love the people who make good theater, and you know, and that's our job. But distance isn't the only people will do other things.
0: Right. So yeah, I mean, you've got your own own um, point of view, and distance is not
1: your your paradigm. Exactly. I mean, I think that um, when I review artists who I know. I believe and hope, and I think that it's basically true, that they're going to be able to, you know, they're mature enough and smart enough to know what where I'm coming from, if I do have anything critical to comment, and who, and I think artists recognize the quality of their work. You know what I mean? I think that a good artist with integrity knows, you know, this is my best work. This over here is not my best work. Okay. You know, yeah. I
0: think so. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You, you'd hope so. Yes. Or at least, it, at least privately, they think that. Yeah, or, but they may not say identify it, that. But... Yes. Yeah. Um, so the the books themselves, uh, one one thing I think is interesting is because you you really are uh, are uh, were on the forefront and still are of of theater, which is really an analog art. <laughs> yes. um, being represented digitally and covered digitally, and um, so I find it, you know, um, intriguing that you would move over to, uh, saying, okay, so we're able to reach as many eyeballs as want to click on a link, but we think it's important to publish a book, <laughs> you know, which yeah. is sort of the opposite thing. is it? So what, what about the physical book do you think is, um, is special to people? What is it that, is it just. The prestige of it, or is there something a little, or is there something that the, the book for a theater artist provides them that, you know, just uh, digital uh, can't?
1: Well, I guess when we started, there really wasn't another paradigm for publishing a play digitally that would have been convenient. Because yeah. basically in 2000, if we did publish it as an ebook and there were such things as ebooks but it was like the gutenberg project you read it on a screen on your computer maybe you could print it out you know, as it was formatted on the screen. Yeah. It's hard to remember how different the world was only a dozen years ago, but it was, like, entirely different. I mean, yeah. now, because there are devices like iPads and iPhones and Kindles and Nooks and et cetera, then, you know, there are many more mobile ways to carry your plays around that just didn't exist. So I don't know. If I, like, got the idea today... For the first right. time, I do not know that I would have even considered making a, a hard book. You know what I mean? I mean, it, it would necess. Sure. I mean, you know, the options now are different. Right. And so one of the reasons that we publish the book is because we publish books. You know, it's like, it's like lots of other things. And I think people like. I think what you said is also true. So I think people like the physicality of it. People like to touch it and see it. And, mm-hmm. and I mean, John Clancy, when we did the very first plays and playwrights for the New Millennium launch at the Present Company in 2000, uh, he told the group, you know, how important he thought the book was because it was a he called it a fetish, you know,
0: uh-huh. in
1: the sense of this is a, a thing, a physical object that we can now sort of say embodies the indie theater movement that did not exist before. And I think that. That tangible, tangibility, yes, yeah. um, is really important to people, and it's interesting because as the the series has progressed, and it has gotten to be re- reasonably well known, and and at least within the world that you know, of indie theater in New York, where where we travel, uh, you know, people really some playwrights really want to get in it, you know, it's like, Mm -hmm. it is a kind of a prestige for them to say, you know, here's a milestone that I want to achieve. You know, this book means something. And it's kind of cool to go to a bookstore or a library and see them all there. I mean, you know, the way that it would never be cool, although it is cool too, but it's a different feeling than when you go to Amazon and you say, Oh, here are my books. But when you actually see them, you know, the physical presence of them is, is, is exciting, you know, and, and, you know, to the extent that, I mean, there's a couple of things that we just don't know yet. I mean, to the extent that books continue to be important in the world, and I don't know, you know, who knows in 40 years if there'll be books, you know, I don't know, Um, you know, but, but I think it's still probably there will be. And then also just the fact that lots and lots of people who use the books To do some of their work, like to, to mount a player, to produce a player, act in the player, do a monologue or whatever. I mean, still, they need the book, you know. They, they, you know. I think there are some actors who have learned how to use, like, their iPhone as the only source for their script. But I don't think that's the majority yet. I think most no. actors are still walking around with some kind of paper document now. So.
0: Yeah, I don't think you see a rehearsal room full of Kindles yet.
1: Not yet. I mean, who knows? You know, it's yeah. an interesting question. I mean, part of it is because the world are you know the main customers of our books, uh, and probably the theater books in general, are people who don't make a huge amount of money because they're actors or they're students. Um, And those people, you know, don't all have Kindles yet, necessarily. necessarily. Sure. You know, but when it becomes more of a, you know, when Kindles are the same in terms of their popularity in the world as, you know, today a smartphone is, you know, any kind of phone. The cell phones. You know, I mean, everybody's got a cell phone, you know.
0: Yeah, I mean, there was a time when a cell phone was a a, – was uh, evidence that you were rich. Yes, yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> I mean I'm so old. I mean I remember when I got when I was in high school and I got my first Texas Instruments, you know, function calculator for like a two hundred dollars or something, and that right. was like a, such a prestige symbol in school because who had like a portable calculator, you know,
0: and <laughs> you know,
1: but it's true, you know. I mean the technology, yeah. the technology is, you know, it's not. It, you know, we don't ever want it to drive us, but the technology does offer tremendous opportunities, and we are once important to take care of them, you know, to oh, make sure tr- we take note of them.
0: Well, it's true. I mean, one thing I think is um, uh, 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 key about the um, the sort of publishing world from the critics' perspective, from the perspectives of reviewers and, 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 and publishers, is – that uh, a lot of people who are viewed as sort of your counterpart in the New York theater world and probably uh, broadly in the theater world um, are are coming from publications first, meaning they uh, there's the New York Times was, and always will be or we think, uh, so uh, first and foremost a piece of paper,
1: mm-hmm.
0: a whole lot of paper, and then it created this web presence that is also omnipresent, yeah, and that's true of time out. Which is a magazine, and that's true of the, all the major papers in each town. But but uh, there is the sort of the the sort of nouveau riche of the people who came straight up out of the internet first. Yes. Who weren't um, who don't who didn't come from publishing and then came to the internet because they had to be seen there too. They sort of went it, it kind of, but it's funny because it, it all sort of moves into the same direction. You've got a web presence and a physical presence, and they have a web presence and a physical presence, but um, it, they're just coming from opposite places. But do you feel like coming out of the the digital world first is informed how you assess uh, publishing? How you assess um, what uh, what your role is? Do you think that distinguishes you from the?
1: Well, I think uh, yeah, only. I, I don't. I don't. I really don't think so. But I think. I mean. I think indirectly. I mean. I think that the way the the, the, the thing that mattered what in in how it all came out was that what I learned when I started doing the online website, you know, the nytheater dot com, was that the important place for us. To make our contribution, and there's two sides to that, where we could be noticed, and also where we were doing the most good, was to focus on the world of off of Broadway or indie theater, because mainstream publications that weren't on the you know that that were in newspapers or magazines didn't pay attention to that stuff. And so, you know, there were, you know, it was a way that we could be, become more prominent in the community, but also it was a way that we could help people that right. weren't getting any notice. And I think that was the lesson that I applied to the book. I mean, as I said before, it's always about trying to get an emerging artists recognition for our, for our books. And I mean, that was the important thing. I mean, if, when, when David Mamet makes a new play, he's on his own to get published. He doesn't have to come to me. Right. And he probably will get published. And even you, at your stage in your career, you've got a couple of, of firms publishing your work now, and that's why I'm not. You know, you don't really. It's not important for me to publish your plays anymore either, or anyone else who's reached the stature you have in, in the profession. Mm-hmm. We're constantly focusing on the new people, right? Because they're the ones that need the attention. I mean, it's so they need it. hard to get paid attention to
0: and what i, I think is, is um kind of uh cool is watching the the window between um you publishing someone and they're getting more attention getting shorter i uh, i i noticed um uh you know like mac rogers with universal robots um he you know it, it wasn't long after you published that that play that um uh he got very uh, uh great praise for viral and started getting a little more attention and 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 uh, around town broadly for being uh, very good at what he does and and uh, Josh Conkle with milk milk lemonade which is now being produced
1: all over the country. Now, viral is all Trumbull, though. I mean, let's not, let's not <laughs> confide right it where we do.
0: Matt Trumbull is an actor, yeah. Yes. Uh, but uh, but Max a, a brilliant guy. But um, uh, Josh Conkle, yeah. um, when did you uh, publish um, Milk Mug Lemonade? That was
1: last year's book. It was in 2010. Yeah. Right. So we last... really we caught him sort of right on the rise. And it was interesting because yeah. he was somebody who. Um, You know, it happened. the uh, the other the the, the attention that started to follow came really right even before the book came out. I mean, he was really getting noticed, and Mm -hmm. it was really. You can ask him if he agrees, but it seems to me, from things he said and the way he behaved, it was important for him to be part of the book, that he wanted to sort of be in the group, you know? Yeah. And, uh, you know, not not the group, is not the right word. To be to be part of the little history that we've started with the book, if I can yeah. don't sound too pompous there.
0: No, 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 no. I, I, no I, I wouldn't put, I wouldn't, we wouldn't be talking to you if we didn't think it was important. Um, uh, so, briefly, you also had uh added a um sort of a, a, a summary of the year to the back of the the book now you only did that for a few years. there was a sort of an almanac a theater almanac for what went on in indie yeah. theater. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about why you brought that in and why you discontinued it?
1: Well, the reason we did it was because, I mean, basically what it was was it was a directory of all the new American plays that appeared in New York that we knew of, because I would never, ever suggest that we caught them all. Right. Um, but it was a lot of them. It was a pretty good effort. Uh, and just to try to provide a record of them, because the main reference material that, exists in the theater world. I mean, there's basically two references in hardback, you know, in, in print. And one of them is the Best Play series, which has been around since... Well really started in nineteen nineteen but it went they did some back dating and went back to eighteen ninety four. And then the Theater World series, which started in nineteen forty five. And those are both chronicles of um all of the activity in American theater conceptually. They started at a time when you could do all of American theater by just covering everything that happened on Broadway and then you'd pretty much be done, you know. Right. And that's no longer true. The response of the best plays books has been to try to make sure they cover as much as they can across the country which is a huge tall effort and that happens at least a few you know it's it's less true now but it was definitely at the time that we got this idea it was definitely at the expense of the off-off Broadway world that off-off Broadway was getting only about 10 pages in those books um, and yet contributing something like 90% of the new plays even though most of them were not well known. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the idea was that we wanted to try to capture that, and it was also sort of wrapped around the idea of trying to uh, invigorate and provide attention to this idea of indie theater, which I think is you know caught on, but is really important to maintain this idea that people understand that the really m- most important most of the really most important news theater that happens in New York is happening in the indie or off off broadway sector. And furthermore, that and, and perhaps even more importantly, trying to dispel the misconception that indie theater is amateur or a bunch of kids goofing around or really avant garde or really silly or really stupid or really confrontational. It's you know, it takes into account Everything. It's run through gamut, and mainly it's just most of what's out there. And most right. of the really creative, interesting stuff happens in that world. So that was, that was part of the impetus. The reason that we stopped doing it is because paper costs so much. Huh. And it yeah. basically got to the place where, um, to do it right, it was adding, you know, 50, 60, 70 pages to a book that, was, you know, of, of which 300 was plays, and now we're making it a 400 page book because we're trying to add all this information. And it's just its not really the mission of the book, we decided. Right. Now, we've been working, you know, I've been trying to figure out other ways to do it. And there's actually, I, I hope that by the time, if we do this again next year, that there'll be an online solution to this problem.
0: So, sure. Uh, Is there sort of a limit to the ability to archive?
1: Well, online, no. That's the beauty of it. I mean, online yeah. we can keep it. I mean, I really, I don't know if if, if you're, if, 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 it, if, it caught your eye, but I mean, we just, we int- introduced a new version of com at the beginning of this year. And yes. one of the things that was included in it was the first steps of bringing back the archive. We brought back all of the fringe reviews. You know, we review every show in the French Festival every year since 2002. You've helped us do that. Mm-hmm. And so all the fringe reviews since we started doing that are now archived online, which was not true before. Now, that was really important because that's like, you know, a huge, that's 2000 plays. Um, that are now just there. And then we've also pulled back through 2005 of all our reviews, and I'm going to keep pulling back to try to get the rest of it up there. Now, obviously, right. we don't review everything that happens in indie theater, but it's a lot. I mean, yeah, well, eight hundred plays a year, so...
0: It couldn't be... It's a pretty close, I'd imagine, or at least it's a—it's the closest thing anyone's come. I mean, were you the your organization was the first to review every show in the fringe? Yes, yes
1: we were the first and and the only one that's done it consistently. We've done it for—we did it. I think we were up to a year. Let's see, 2002 is our first year. This is 2000. So this is our 10th year doing it, and we do it this summer. Wow. Ten years. And, and it's, not, it's only been done, I assumed that in 2000, you know, we did this for the first time in 2002, and I was sure that in 2003 other people would do it. Yes. And then it didn't happen at all until Time Out did it like a couple of years, a few years ago. But I'm not sure that their approach was as serious as it could have been. And um, I don't think they did it last year.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, you know, it's uh I mean you have a sort of volunteer army. Yes,
1: it's a beautiful uh, thing.
0: Yeah, um so um which is sort of you know, uh, it sort of feeds the site and the site feeds the army, you know. Exactly. Uh, right. A little bit. Uh so there's a symbiotic relationship between the artists and the uh the uh, the content a bit. Definitely. Uh, yeah. Um which I think inspires people to get out there and help um so with the with the new book coming up um what do you envision for the future of the the plays and playwrights books are you moving more towards ebooks or uh, or you um, you're going to just continue on as you go i mean you did publish two uh, two books that were not just kind of year end reviews you there was the mario fratti book and uh playing with canons yeah
1: yes yeah we did playing with canons was the first of those we did that and I... It's a book of uh, 18 adaptations of works of literature or drama. And they were plays that either they were plays by people we'd already published that we really loved or plays by people that we, that we, that we really admired and liked, but they didn't really fit the theme of the plays and playwrights books because, you know, they're kind of about new and fresh and exciting and, you know, and, and so adaptations always kind of feel out of place in there, although we have published some from time to time. So it was just a way to really collect some really wonderful material into a book. But I think, you know, unfortunately, I think we tactically we made a mistake. It's an oversized book. It's a heavy book. And, it is a big book, yeah, and, and I don't think that it's as appealing as I thought it would be, because mm-hmm. I think one of the things that's great about the plays and Playwright series is that it is just the size of a paperback. It's you know the kind you can sit on a chair and read, and mm-hmm. you know it doesn't feel like a textbook. And so um, playing with canons, you know, taught us a lesson about size, which is important. I'm very proud of it. It's got great plays in it, including one by Matt so
0: in, in, uh, right. But in uh, in uh, play publishing, size matters. Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely. I think so. And <laughs> then the other play we did was Mario Fradi and that was really very much um, driven by his 80th anniversary I mean his 80th birthday uh, he uh, for people who don't know Mario Frati is, um, he's a playwright who's been working in the theater internationally for I guess by now about 50 years and he's very um, very very well known in Europe and in Italy where he's from um here, his major credit is that he was the original book writer of the musical Nine. but he's written, like, you know, hundreds of plays. I don't think that's an exaggeration. He's tremendously prolific. And when we learned, as his 80th birthday was looming, that none of his plays were in print in America, except nine, um, huh. it was like, well, gee, you know, and we love Mario, and he's been a great supporter of our work. And so it was a really, you know, it's not something we would, you know, it was just one of those, Spontaneous decisions that you can make, you know. And said, "We should publish this guy's plays and get get the body of work out there." And it was really nice because we only just saw him on Sunday, and he said that he's really seen an increase in productions. Oh, that's that wonderful! It's Really helped to get people to remind people. You know, I mean, it's you know, we're a very fickle culture, and sure. you know, if you're not, you know, you know, if you wrote. Fifty great plays, but the last one really was not successful. The last successful one was in 1980. You know, right? You might, might as well. You know, where are they now? You know, and, yeah. and so it's, you know, but but it's great work. And 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 you know, I wish. You know, in a way, I mean, we knew Mario well, on a, and 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 you know, his birthday made it an occasion. But mm-hmm. yeah, you know, there's lots of people. That if resources permitted, I'd love to do that kind of thing for him. But yeah, what it was? What's the title of that book? That's so called. That's called. Unf- Un- I was—I was, I was going to say the wrong word. Unpredictable plays, which is what unpredictable they are, plays. and they
0: are. Yeah, so <laughs> Well-titled. <laughs> um, do you have uh, plans to? Uh, I guess my question is—you uh, know—I mean, maybe you can't anticipate this, um, but do you have plans to, to branch out into other kinds of—you know—publishing anthologies like playing with canons of, of different themes, or, or are you sort of happy, uh, you know, uh, with as the books as they evolve? You've constantly got new uh, writers to to publish.
1: The thing that we're trying to crack next, and and I think we're close to cracking it. I think Mm -hmm. that you know within months something will surface, Mm
0: -hmm. but
1: it's nothing ready yet. So teaser, teaser. But but basically, here here's the here's what we're trying to accomplish. The thing that we're trying to accomplish is to get plays to press. And when I say press, it might be online. It doesn't have to be in a book. Um, or it could be both. But get plays out faster. One of the frustrations is that the annual anthology is that you know it's annual. So even if, so, if I see a book right now, I see a excuse me, if I see a play today that I love, it won't come out in the book based on our current cycle Until for fully year. a year. You know. Yeah. And that's in, that's one of the things that you know in 1999 when we started all this. I guess it didn't feel so bad, but now mm-hmm. it's like a year, you know. That's that's, a, that's an eternity in Internet time, you know. Right, yeah, so, that's true. So time to market seems to be a really important thing. And so what we really want to try to solve is the problem of how do we get plays out there more quickly. And we we'll are working on it. Great, great.
0: Um, I'd love for you to talk a little bit about, uh, you know we we're, we're, we're uh, nearing the end of our time I'd uh, love to talk a little bit about the impetus be- behind pushing the term indie theater as opposed to off off Broadway off off Broadway obviously has a has a long tradition as a as a sort of label um, as a brand um, what 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 inspired uh, a, a a desire to rebrand off off Broadway
1: well the idea came it was born the night of the first New York Innovative Theater Awards, which was in 2005, I think. I think that's right. And the first winner of the Cafe Chino Award from the New York Innovative Theater Foundation was Kirk Bromley and the Inverse Theater. And in his speech, Kirk said that he wanted to propose renaming off-off-Broadway indie theater. And the analogies that he used, he said, he doesn't. I don't feel like I'm off anything or, or not something, you know, or, you know, I, I don't want to define myself by the thing that I'm not. I feel like I'm, I'm speaking for her now. I feel like I'm an indie filmmaker. I'm the equivalent of that, or I'm an indie music maker. That right. I'm making a kind of theater that has, in, that, that, that independence is, is part of what we're doing, that we're, that we're, that is free from commercial structures and free from the things that we considered mainstream as opposed to indie and i thought that he was dead right i thought that his idea was absolutely correct and apt and have, i without really knowing it i mean he sort of made me realize that to call this part of the theater off off broadway i mean I, it's meaning it, it only is only meaningful in a contractual manner. I mean, what Off-Up Broadway is is a thing that unions like Actors' Equity define, and it Mm -hmm. defines places where you can perform and contracts under which things can be performed. It doesn't really, when it started in the 60s, the Off-Off reflected anti-establishment the way that a lot of what was going on in the 60s was anti-establishment, and so it was a badge of honor. But now I feel that off-off-broadway is considered to just be, you know, kind of what it sounds like, not Broadway, you know, not even off-broadway, but like so far off-broadway that, you know, and that's a joke. You hear it all the time. You know, we're Uh, off-off-off-off-off-off-off-broadway. And it doesn't really mean anything. It it does frame the art that people are creating, to my mind, in a negative way. Indie theater is Mm -hmm. a positive way to look at what people are doing. And I don't think that indie theater is necessarily narrowly constrained to being off-off-broadway contractually. yeah, um, It's lots of things that I see in lots of different theaters for indie, and lots of things I see in off-off-broadway theaters don't. So right. it's a yeah, state of sure mind.
0: If you felt, yeah, if indie was, if it was, uh, if it was just a rebranding of Off-Off, or if you feel like it's its own aesthetic, its own, if it has its own flavor.
1: I think it does. I mean, I think the thing that, to my mind, I mean, there's a couple of ways to look at it, and it's, I mean, I mean, I think principally it really is a price point term that okay. indie theater is theater that people can afford. In contrast with most of Broadway and Off Broadway, which unless you get some kind of special or something or go to the mm-hmm. TKTS booth, you you probably can't afford, you know, because it costs hundreds of dollars. Right. And what's important about that is not just not that you can afford it, but the fact that that was the computer speaking. But what's that, important is that. People that I think there's a lot of people who do not know that there is theater that they can afford to see. And here's a story to illustrate that. When when God Light Theater Company did a production of Slaughterhouse-Five a few years ago, 5090s, 59th, it reminded me that I didn't have the book, so I went to Borders to buy the book. And so I got my copy of Slaughterhouse-Five at the counter, and the young man, you know, probably about 23 or something, uh, standing at the counter said, Oh, I love this book. And so I said, oh, you know, there's a play of this book right now. And he said, really? I didn't know that. I said, yeah, there's a play. He said, well, that probably costs like $130, right? And I said, no, huh. it's like $20. And he had no idea. And I think most right. people have no idea. I mean, we in the theater world, we know it. But the average person, when they think of theater, they think of Way Miz or or um, Jersey Boys or Mamma Mia, and they know it costs a lot of money. And they don't realize that there's all this cool stuff like Vampire Cowboys shows and Blue Coyote shows and, you know, Crystal Skillman shows and you know, you name it. You know. Sure. Stuff that, you know, isn't the
0: brick. I have to mention the brick contractually. The brick. Yes, I'm the sure brick you do. Theater yeah, in Williamsburg. yeah. You know,
1: but stuff that's not stuff that's that is genuinely fun and cool and also you could actually afford to go to, you know. Yeah. That it's not like a, a you know, a week's salary by the time you add in the babysitter and the meal, you know. But sure. it's really just not that much more than a night of the film, you know, a night of the movies. Yeah. And and that's what we're trying to get people to do. I mean, I mean, it really surprises me. I'm, I'm i if I, this is, I'm sorry if I'm going off on a tangent, but you.
0: No, no, I want. No, I'm, I'm curious.
1: It surprises me how people will spend whatever it costs to go to a movie, fifteen dollars or something nowadays. I don't know, um, or whatever it costs to go to a band, you know, at a, at a club. Without sure. thinking about it, I mean, without blinking an eye, you know, oh, there's a new movie, okay, you know, oh, I got terrible news, that's fine, you know, but in right. <laughs> the theater, it's like, if it doesn't have, like, testimonials, and, you know, people, like, swearing it's good, people won't go, and it's often cheaper. You know, but I mean, people. There's some kind of weird thing that oh, theater. I've got to. I couldn't possibly spend twenty dollars at the theater unless I knew in advance that it was the best thing I'd ever seen. I feel that all the time. I feel that there's this crazy weird thing, and we have to break that because. Yeah theater is just this other fun way to spend the night out. Sometimes it's earth like Most of the time feel
0: like it's, it's the, the liveness of it, do you think the fact that the performers are in the space exactly. with you? Sometimes I wonder if, if, if uh, what we're experiencing is just the anxiety of being in a room with other people, and it's a little more exhausting and, and taxing to watch other live human beings do something we don't enjoy than watching a, a two dimensional screen do something where you could just eat your popcorn and walk out, you know.
1: And, I mean, I mean, you, you probably are right, but to me, I mean, the especially as the world gets less and less, less and less connected as it it's more and more connected, uh, that wonderful paradox that we live, yeah.
0: in, you
1: know, where, you, where everyone, where you stand on an elevator and everyone is on their iPhone, um, <laughs> not holding the door open as a result. <laughs> um, you know, connection is really important. I mean, it's really important for us to gather. I mean, the best definition that I ever heard of theater is Chris Hopkins, who was in our first book, who said that for him, theater was an exploration of this phenomenon where a whole bunch of people gather in a room together and some of them act weird, and we try to figure out why. And I mean, that's a really (laughs) fundamental thing to have to do, you know, to gather that way and to have that communal experience. When that experience... When it's good, as it is a lot of the time, such as at a mass Freeman point.
0: <laughs>
1: is the best experience that I know of. I mean, I honestly, I mean, I'm not just saying that. I mean, that's what I truly, that's why I do this. Yeah. Because when it happens, there's nothing like it.
0: Well, that's, that's uh, fantastic. And I, I really appreciate you talking with me today. And I, I know that um, uh, there are a whole lot of people who have been um, – helped and uh, inspired by the, um, the the books that you publish uh, and the uh, the work that you do. Um, so uh, could you remind everybody again when the next book is coming out and maybe talk about some of the plays in it and playwrights who are in it?
1: I would love to do that. Thank you. That was very nice what you just said, by the way. Oh, I appreciate it. It's Okay, so Plays in Players 2011, 2011, is coming out in mid-May. It's got eight plays in it, and I'll remember seven of them. Um, No, I'll try to get all eight. Okay, the plays (laughs) in this book are uh, Fault Lines by Rebecca Louise Miller, which is, do you want me to talk about what they are a little bit?
0: Oh, feel free, yeah.
1: Okay, Fault Lines is is a story about um, a reunion of three women who are probably around 30 years old, who have not seen each other probably practically since an event that happened in their childhood that changed their life, and you'll have to read it to find out what that was. That's our right. that's our hook. <laughs>
0: um,
1: it's a fine, fine play. It's her first play, and she's very—it's amazingly mature um, and really wonderful writing. I mean, it's really just a terrific, a terrific piece. So that's the first play. In the book. The second play is uh, Postmodern Living, which is by Richard Scheinmel and Clay Zambo. It premiered at La Mama. It's this actually the second in a series. It's called Modern Living. And it's about a performance artist who writes plays about his life. Um, not unlike Richard Scheinbell, who wrote it. Um, mm-hmm. and this play has two parts. The first part is about just a Christmas celebration and I love that because it's a play where nothing happens, but everything happens, if you know what I mean. Sure. Um, there's no real plot, nothing really occurs. And then the second one has more of a plot. It's about the, his, his mother's discovery that she has breast cancer, and so it's a ah. very but it's not. You know, I, made, I might have made it sound bad. It, it's it's serious, but never not funny. I mean, it's it's a it's the kind of play where you laugh all the way through. And it's got some songs in it, really lovely piece. Uh, third play is called G.I. Joe Jared, based on a really bad date which hmm. is a comedy by Amy Whitting. And it's a delightful play about uh, two two young women who meet at a bar, and one of them is meeting her online blind date, who turns out to be a, a, a fellow whose talent is that he reads tarot cards. And huh. it's, it's pretty funny. It's a cute story. Sounds cool. And then the next one is uh, what's number four. Number four is "Love, Lo- Love Me, Love Me" by Jason S. Grossman, um, which is a really it's it's it, it is an absolutely it's just a funny fun story. It's the kind of play that if there's any god, um, a whole bunch of movie producers will be optioning it after they read it because oh, really it would make it's just it's just a you know I, you hate to use words because they sound cliche but it's a feel good romantic comedy. It's just this about a guy on a search for his soulmate and, you know, I don't think it's spoiling much to say he finds her, you know, (laughs) but it's you know the adventure, you know, over a couple of years... And it's just a fun, it's just a, it's just, it's got a lot of heart. It's just a fun, fun play and very funny. He's a very funny writer. Um, the next one is Hassan and Sylvia, which I talked about a few minutes ago. That's the play about um, this young man who falls in with uh, a couple of exotic characters and, and it turns out that everybody has a price, but it's, right. it's, it's not, as, it's not at all bitter. Like I said, there's no sentiment, there's no bitterness, very clear eyed, lovely piece. Um and then the next one is uh three My Love, which is by Javier Antonio Gonzalez, who is a young man from Puerto Rico who just graduated from columbia and hmm. Columbia University, not Columbia, the country. Ah, and okay. um <laughs> Very smart, and he's he doesn't like me to say that it's magic realism, um, but I ran out of ways to describe it. It's magical, yet it's realistic. Um, it's a play about, an probably a legal Latin American immigrant, and and you know it's it's mostly about watching, paying attention to someone who is totally invisible in New York, you know right. that, that waitress at the bodega or at the coffee shop who you pay no attention to. You know, we all do, right? You know what I mean? Yeah, of course. Um, you know, but let's find out who she is. So it's sort of like her life, and, and, and it's, some of it's happening in her mind, and some of it's happening in life, and it's plays. You know, it's a playful piece. It's really, really lovely writing. And then the next one is West Lethargy by Stephen Kalisky, and West Lethargy is similarly magical and realistic, actually a little less realistic. It's about two couples who are on a journey across America, from east to west who meet somewhere in the middle and one of the couples is a contemporary couple looking for the brother of the woman and the other couple seems to be living in the 19th century. Hmm. So, it's what happens to them. Interesting. Interesting. It is very interesting. Um, It was in the Fringe Festival last year and that's where we saw it and he's a a very promising young writer. This is also his first play. And then the book concludes with Endless Summer Nights which is by Tim Erickson who people might recognize as the artistic director of Boomerang Theater. Mm -hmm. He's best known as a director. Uh, This is actually his first play to be produced and it's a very grown-up a wistful romantic drama about uh, two characters, a man and a woman who uh, basically they were lovers when the last year in high school, that last summer before college uh, they were, they'd fallen in love and and it's now 20 years later and they haven't seen each other except she comes back to town he's actually about to leave town for good okay. and so it's what'll happen are they going to yeah. reconnect? And, uh, I, have
0: a, I know a lot of people who saw that play uh, when it was performed in New York and were b- big, big fans of it and uh, really loved uh, the uh, showcase for the actors Michael Criscolo. Uh, was the lead in it, and people said that he did a terrific job. And I, I you know, so yes. uh, I'm really glad that that's been published. I've, I've heard good things, so I look forward to reading it.
1: Yeah, I hope you like it. I really, that was really personally. I was very happy that we were able to publish that because, first of all, it's a good piece. but mm-hmm. Michael, who has been one of the most important supporters of my since we started, and worked for us for a long time to raise capacities. Um, it's the first time he's in one of our books as an actor, so I was Great. happy that we could stick Michael in there finally.
0: Oh, that's terrific. Uh, Martin Denton, I really appreciate uh, you speaking with us today. Uh, I hope everybody seeks out, if they have not already, the Plays and Playwrights series. Uh, look forward to hearing a whole lot more about it and reading all of the plays.
1: Can we say a website where they can get more information? Please do. Yes, that would be com, and there you can find it all about the book, and there will be interviews with all the authors published, uh, but, you know, over the next month, that's uh, the next thing's going to happen, and and also links to how you can get the book, various places online or in stores.
0: Great, and so and that's New York Theater Experience, NYTE, is it .dot org or .dot com?
1: Well, is the, the book site is press .dot com. Oh, got it. The company's website is NYTE .dot org, but you should go to NYTESmallPress .dot com to get immediately find out about the books great instead of having to like press a whole bunch of buttons
0: right nobody likes buttons we'll just put in the right we'll put in the right uh, address to start with yeah that's great great thanks so much for talking to me today
1: thank you it was a pleasure
0: it was absolutely great thanks for your insight and uh, thank you uh, to the uh, listeners for listening to the new books in theater podcast Thanks for listening to the New Books in Theater podcast. Check out all the great podcasts on the New Books Network at newbooksnetwork.com. Thanks.